joking with the AV team that last week I got it off, my mask off, without tearing the mic off, and I was bragging. This is what happens. There we go. I think it's on. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If you're new around here, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. We're glad that you could be our guest today as we worship Jesus. If you want to grab your Bibles, uh, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 42 today. Isaiah chapter 42. And as you're turning there, you, you may have noticed in the announcements that this week, uh, during our Connect Groups, which just started last week, by the way, yep, there, there's some folks that are, that are excited about their groups. Um, but uh, this week in groups, we are having what we call our house meetings, which is part of our justice ministry called Peace. And Peace is a network of churches across the county. Uh, there's 24 churches that work together for different issues in our community. And so the house meetings are like the essential first step where we listen to stories of what's going on in our community. And so we'll be doing that in our connect groups this week. So if you're in a connect group, uh, just know this week it'll be a great time of just sharing. There's just two or three questions and, and just to prompt us to share what's going on in our uh, families or our communities that we live in to listen to our community as we uh, seek to do the work of God um, for our county. So wanted to let you know what that meant in the announcements as we are uh, doing that this week. Isaiah chapter 42, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 and eight, 18 through 20. 18 through 20. So hear the reading of God's word. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Verse 18, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the king's servant. The king's servant. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that... Uh, it's as we come to your word that we have the promise that you will meet us and by your spirit you will transform us. And so God, we pray that your word today would renew our minds, our hearts, our souls, that, that even our hands and our feet would go forth serving because it's been your word that's changed us. And so Lord, we ask that you would do it today uh, once again for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. This past week, I was uh, standing at the kitchen sink at our house, doing the dishes, and I got frustrated. Not because I was doing the dishes, that's just normal in our house, like, you know, there's always dishes. You got three kids, there's always something to be washed. It's like you wash all the dishes, and then someone comes in with a plate from somewhere, I don't know where they found it, and there's another dirty dish in the sink. You know how that is? Like, it's just this constant, yeah, I, I don't know how that works, if anyone has any advice on that. But that's not my point. I was there doing dishes. 
and I go to turn on the garbage disposal, flick the little switch that's next to it, and it makes this little whining sound, like eh, like it was trying to turn on and it couldn't turn on. So I turned the switch off, and then I flicked the switch again, turned it back on, and it made the same noise, but a little bit softer. Still didn't turn on, and then I turned it off, turned it back on. This time, no noise. Nothing. Then I'm just flicking the switch. It's not doing anything. And now I'm really confused and frustrated because it's like 10 o'clock at night. I'm supposed to be going to bed. What, what is this? And so I, I decide I'm going to unplug the garbage disposal, stick my hand down there, see if there's a, a, a spoon or a fork or something stuck in there. And I couldn't find anything. And so I realized I'm going to have to wait for this thing to drain. And so I, I left it overnight and let it just drain all this water, you know, water mixed with the food and all the plates I was washing and all. It was just gross and I was angry and trying to go to sleep. And I wake up in the morning and the water had gone down quite a bit. And so then I'm able to look around in the garbage disposal and there's this little tiny piece of metal that was somehow wedged in the in the crevice that makes it turn. And and so it somehow jammed in there and it couldn't turn. And so it just completely shut itself off. And I'm like, I don't know how this piece of metal got in here. I, I don't know if it was me or one of the kids or somebody. I don't know. But somehow this little piece got in there and it couldn't work because it wasn't designed to dispose metal. Like That's not what the garbage disposal was meant to do. You're not supposed to put metal down in there. And, and it got wedged in and shut the whole thing down. But I was able to pull it out and it turned right back on. And I was realizing, asking myself, what, why did I get so frustrated. Why, why was it hard for me then to go to bed that night? Because I was laying in bed angry at the garbage disposal. Why? Because it's frustrating when things don't work, right? There, there's something in us that, that says this should work. When I turn the switch, it should turn on and everything should work and I shouldn't have to deal with this. And so I was getting frustrated because there's something in me that longs for things to work to work the way they were designed to work. I mean, it's, it's a lot of things in life, right? It's not just the garbage disposal, right? And there's lots of things that don't work. There's lots of things. I mean, cars don't work. Relationships don't work. Governments don't work. Uh, all kinds of things. You, you've got jobs and, and things in your life that, that just don't work. And you get frustrated. Why? Because there's this longing deep within us that it would work. And where does that come from? Because it's not just a Christian thing. It's not like Christians long for this and other people don't, or maybe you're not religious or spiritual and, and you're here just trying to figure things out. But, but it's, it's every human desire. Every person wants things to work. It's why we stay up late at night worried about our kids. It's why we try to make a difference in our community. It's, it's why we grieve so deeply when we lose a loved one. Right? There's, there's something in us as human beings that we want it to work. And we know that this world, the way it is, is not working the way it's supposed to. Right? That, that's just, it's, it's inherent to us. We, we just sense it. We, we have known it our whole life that this world is not working the way it's supposed to work. And that brings us to our text today. As, as we look at Isaiah, we're walking through the book of Isaiah this fall and they are in, the people of God are in a time period where things are not working. Right? They're, they're in a situation where they've been exiled out of their land. 
and they've lost their families, they've lost their homes, they've lost their jobs, their, their community, everything around them, they've lost it, and, and everything's in a, in a state of chaos. Everything is up in the air, they're not sure if they're going to make it the next day, and, and, and so everything is just tense and, and anxious, and they're afraid, they don't know what to do. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and so God's people start to look around in this new land of Babylon, and they see all these idols. They see all these other gods in Babylon, and they start you know, checking them out. Oh, there's an idol that I can get power, an idol I can get control, and an idol I can get pleasure. All, all these things that we long for that might make a change to the chaos. And it doesn't. In fact, all the promises that these idols make, they end up being empty promises, right? Because idols, they're, they're always these over-promises and under-deliver. They never give you what you think they're going to give you. And so they were told that these idols would make a difference. They would change the chaos. And then, this is what happens in chapter 41, they realize it didn't. And so now the question becomes, what does? What what actually brings change? How does God bring the world from not working to working? You catch that? that that's the question happening in chapter 42. And, and so I want to dive in asking that question. How does God renew the world into one that works? First, if you're taking notes, we have to consider his chosen servant. So the first point today is the chosen servant. Look at me at verse 1. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, chapter 41 was all about the idols, and it ended with this phrase. You can look at the last verse in chapter 41. It said, behold the idols. And then now chapter 42 begins with a whole different thing. It says, behold my servant. Right? So chapter 41 was all about the idols who, who couldn't do anything. Their works were nothing is what God says. They, they, they were unable to bring about change, and then now it's, behold, my servant. He, he is the one who is going to do what they couldn't do. He is called to do what they couldn't do. And so uh, the, the question becomes, who is the servant? Now, this is an age-old question. For, for centuries now, Jewish scholars and Christian scholars have debated the identity of the servant in Isaiah. And so we don't have time to get into all the intricacies of is it Israel or is it the Messiah and, and what, what is the identity here? But here's, here's what I'll give you. The short answer is yes. The short answer is it's both, right? And that, that's usually how Old Testament prophecy works. There's this immediate uh, meaning in the, in the context of when it was spoken, but then there's a fulfillment later on. And so in the immediate, as, as Isaiah is speaking this to the people, the servant is his people. And you see that in chapter 41 in verse, uh, what was it, verse 8, I think, in chapter 41. Yeah, verse 8, he says, my servant. He calls Israel his servant, and he'll do that again throughout the book. And so it's kind of this back and forth where you see that right here, that Israel, God's people, were called to be his servant. That they were called to be the ones who would bring the light of the gospel to the nations. They were called to be the ones who would bring His glory to all the earth, right? That, that was the calling for God's people from the beginning. And here he gives specific language. He says that my servant might bring forth justice. Now, what is justice? 
Right? We've been talking about it throughout the book of Isaiah, and so if you're new joining in now, you can go back and listen to some of the things we've been talking about. But to summarize it quickly, it's a Hebrew word here called mishpat. And mishpat means, uh, it means basically the, everything is the way it's supposed to be. Everything is working the way it was designed to work. It, it is the, the flourishing of all creation. It, it's the wholeness of the whole world. You get the idea? right? It, it's, you might hear the word justice and you might think politics because of the time we live in and how that word may have been captured by people in our culture, but it's a biblical word here in Hebrew that means the flourishing of all creation. It means everything the way it's supposed to be. It was the opposite of the Hebrew word tohu, which means chaos, right? So if, if chaos is, is the, the, the nature of, of sin and, and what sin has done to our world, then justice is bringing everything back together. You see that? It's, it's bringing order, it's bringing thriving and wholeness, and that's the call he gives to his people. God is saying, my plan for justice is through my people. It's through my people. But listen, it's not just a message of justice that he's describing here. This is key. It's a method for justice. This is real key here. He, this is what's unique about this text for our time. He, he's saying that there is specifically three methods that are going to mark my biblical justice. Are you ready for them? It's selflessness, gentleness, and faithfulness. Selflessness, gentleness, and faithfulness. So selflessness, he, he says that my servant won't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street, right? What he's saying is he's not advocating some kind of silence on, on whatever the issue may be. He's actually advocating for a specific kind of speaking. Because you'll see throughout the rest of the Bible that, that silence is not an option for God's people when it comes to issues of justice. But he does care about how you speak. And so what he's saying here, these three Hebrew verbs are talking about self-promotion, right? It, it's saying, I, I'm raising up my voice with the intent that people would look at me. People would see me. People would wonder at how great I am and how awesome I'm doing and, and what I care about, right? Sound familiar? I mean, that, that is right in our, our selfie culture, social media culture, where we got a lot of people who want to post about things we got a lot of people who want to bring attention to themselves about whatever the issue may be because it's, it's beneficial, right? It, it promotes my brand. It, it helps my company's reputation. It, it speaks to, to who I am as a person and creates an identity of somebody who, who cares about these things, right? That, that's exactly what he's saying not to do. That you are promoting yourself when you speak. So the question is not, should you speak? It's when you speak, why are you speaking? Why? Is it to draw attention to myself or to the issue at hand? You see that? So he says it's selflessness. But then the second thing is it's gentleness. The servant won't, as famously he says, won't break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. I mean, these two images are images of, of gentleness and, and vulnerability and, and, and care, right? These two things are, are um, things that are weak, that, that if at any moment you, you go too hard, it, it could crush it. 
And so he's saying, I, I want you to think about that as you are engaging in this work of justice. I want you to be thoughtful about the other. You hear that? Right? Again, this is, this is different than maybe what you've heard as you've heard people talk about justice, where some people are looking for justice as an outlet for their outrage. And I'm talking about whatever political side you're on or whatever you know, theology you believe or whatever. There are, there are people who think that this is my opportunity to harm the person who's harmed me. Right? This is an eye for an eye opportunity. And so I'm going to get my justice by the way you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And, and God is saying, when you engage in the work of justice, I want you to treat them as if they are uh, vulnerable. I want you to treat whatever the person is, whoever the person is, as somebody who's made in the image of God. I, I want you to be thoughtful about that. Because what you say matters, and how you say it matters. Now, again, this is not saying that, that uh, tension is not necessary. Let's be cautious. There's some nuance here. In fact, I would say that tension, biblical tension, is absolutely necessary for real change to happen. There's, there's not going to be a situation where it's just going to be flowers and giggles. But we can be thoughtful about how we engage. We can be thoughtful about the other person. You hear that? So it's, it's gentleness, it's selflessness, and the last one is it's faithfulness. He says, my servant will, the others were won't, but this one will be faithfully bringing justice. Right? This might be the most radical of our entire culture. Because we live in an instant culture where, like I said, you post something, you've got you know, something that's on the news, and, and somebody's like, yeah, I'm all about that, and they'll post it, and they'll write a thing, and they'll go live about it, and then five days later, they forgot about it. Or, or they, they get so passionate about one thing, and the next thing, they're, they're on the next news cycle, and they just follow the news cycles. That, that, that is not justice. That's just media. And what, what he's saying here is, is it's faithfulness that brings about justice. It's faithfulness that brings about fruit. And so in order to do that, we, we have to be faithful in following through, right? We have to be faithful in bringing about change. It's almost never going to be instant. Systemic change, whatever the issue may be, is almost always going to take time and persistence, and prayer, and so faithfulness means that we show up, and we show up, and we show up, and we show up until something changes. Just this past week, uh, our, our ministry that we were just talking about, Peace, saw this happen in real time. On Monday night, we, we saw the faithfulness and the fruit of that longevity come to reality. And what happened was three years ago, we had done some research and discovered that there were 5,000 homeless children in our county, in the Polk County school system, documented. These are just the people that have, that have said, have gone on record that they are homeless in our county. And so we were shocked by that. We had no idea that was happening. And, and so we started doing research on what, what could do, uh, you know, what could change, what could do, make a difference in that. And so we started to find out that it was primarily because of a lack of affordable housing. And affordable housing three years ago was bad. It's gotten worse now since the pandemic. 
But back then, it was, it was hundreds of people on the waiting list. You would wait years to get into an affordable housing uh, situation. And so we realized we need to change that, and we started looking for different models out there that would have best practices, and we found an affordable housing trust fund model that would bring about basically a systemic change to fund and incentivize private uh, developers to come in and build these affordable housing units. And because of that, they would not have to lose money, and the city wouldn't have to manage it, and everybody wins. And, and so we were calling these people to say, hey, let's figure out a way to talk about this and to bring this out and, and discuss if this is an option. And Winter Haven's city commission refused to meet with us at first. They refused to be a part of the conversation, denied that there was a problem even, said all kinds of terrible things, and then we kept pushing. And we kept asking, and we kept showing up, and we kept going to their meetings and inviting them to our meetings. And over time, they began to open up to maybe this is a problem, and maybe we should create a plan. And so they hired someone to create a plan, and then we followed up with them through making that plan and worked together on what that looks like. This last Monday night, they just voted to create an affordable housing trust fund for $1.5 million towards affordable housing. It's a miracle. But it took three and a half years. And now Winter Haven is only the second city in the whole state of Florida who has such a program. Winter Haven, Florida. And it's incredible to, to think that that process, as slow as it was, the persistence, it changed what happened. And when they voted on Monday night, um, the crowd erupted, you know, the audience there, they erupted in, in celebration and applause. And this is what the mayor said. He said, my, oh my, we've never been applauded in Winter Haven for any vote I've ever seen. And then the, the city manager of Winter Haven said, on behalf of our team, I want to thank the peace group. If it were not for the persistence of peace, this never would have happened. You kept us motivated to do the right thing. Isn't that incredible? Three and a half years ago, they wouldn't even meet with us. And, and so I want to tell you that story just to say, God uses his people. He uses the persistence of his people to make change. That's what he wants to do. And so what, why does that justice not happen? What, what makes that hard as the servants call? This is the second point, the ignorant servant. Look at verse 18. It says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind is the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Now, the previous picture in verses 1 through 4 is, is this ideal servant. This is what God is calling his people to do, and now he gets to the reality. Verse 18 through 20 and, and, and onward basically talk about how this is where they are. This, this is the reality that they failed to live up to that ideal. And so you see right here where, where they're called blind and deaf that obviously this servant can't be strictly referring to the Messiah. Right? Because he's describing the servant in sinful ways. And so the servant, again, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, about the development of this theme in Isaiah's theology. But, but for now, he's speaking to God's people. He's saying, uh, this, this is where you are, not where you should be. 
And it goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 5, when we first started this series, where God said to them, He said, He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Right Back in chapter 5, when he's describing the vineyard and the fruit that he sees in his people, he was describing what he saw, and now he's saying, this is why. This is why there's no justice, is because, what? Real simple, you're blind. You, you can't see. You can't hear. It's not because you don't have ears. He says, you're, you're hearing all kinds of things. You're, you're seeing all kinds of things. You're, you're engaging in the world, but, but somehow you're not really seeing. You're not really hearing. Right? This injustice is happening in broad daylight, and, and you, God's people, were called to make a difference here. And it hasn't. The poor are oppressed, the sojourners excluded, the widow is forgotten, the disabled are ignored. God's people perpetuate the problem in our blindness. And so the injustice is fueled by, by ignorance. By ignorance. Ralph Abernathy, he was uh, a, a best friend of Martin Luther King, uh, kind of his right-hand guy in their whole operation as well. Uh, but he writes in his autobiography about uh, an experience that they had that really led them to start their work in Memphis, which was right before, months before Dr. King was shot. And he says, we were in a small schoolhouse in a, in a tiny, hidden, backwoods town called Marks, Mississippi. And it, it was a small black community with lots of poverty, and it was basically off the map. No one cared about them. They're out here in this, this place interviewing people. And they go to this schoolhouse to interview the teacher at and uh, they're interviewing the lady about what it's like to teach in the environment and what their struggles are. And the lady interrupts their conversation to say that uh, it's lunchtime. She needs to go feed the kids. And so she walks away from the table they're sitting at. She goes over to the area where she's preparing the food. She pulls out a bag of apples and begins to cut them into quarters. And then she pulls out a box of crackers and divides them up and then passes them out to each child in the classroom and each child for lunch got four crackers and a quarter of an apple. And as they're watching, Ralph and Martin are sitting there in the classroom watching this happen. Ralph thinks to himself, that, that's their lunch. And they probably didn't get breakfast. And this is all these kids get day after day. And then he looks over at his friend Martin and there's tears streaming down his eyes. And then they leave a few minutes later and they go back to their hotel and, and Dr. King lays on the bed with his eyes just staring at the ceiling. He's silent. He doesn't say anything. And then he breaks the silence like this. This is what he says. He says, Ralph, I can't get those children out of my mind. We've got to do something. We can't let that kind of poverty exist. I don't think people really know that little school children are slowly starving in this country because I didn't know. We need to expose this so everyone else can see it like us. You hear that? This is Martin Luther King. He's saying, I didn't know this was happening. I, I wasn't aware of this, but now that I'm aware of it, it's, it's breaking my heart. We have to do something about it. We have to. See, there's two kinds of ignorance, really. There's the first kind of ignorance, which is unintentional ignorance. Right? You don't know what you don't know. 
You're, you're not aware that there's other things happening. And this can happen to all of us. It does happen to all of us because none of us are aware of everything that's happening at all times. Right? None of us know all things. None of us are God. And so there's going to be times where you come up against new information, new experiences, things you didn't know. And so that, that happened to us with peace, right? None of us knew about these kids that were homeless in our school system. And so it was because they're, they're hidden. They're hidden from plain sight. They're, they're kids who are sleeping in cars and motels and couches for their, their families or whatever. Like they're, they're hidden out of plain sight, but when they come into our vision and we see what we couldn't see, it gives us a chance to say, now I can do something about it. I'm no longer blind, I'm no longer deaf, but I see and I hear, and now I'm called to respond. But that brings us to a second kind of ignorance. It's an intentional ignorance. And this is where you know, you're made aware of something and you intentionally choose to turn the other way. So that, so that I don't have to see it anymore. So I don't have to hear it anymore. I, I don't want to be a part of this because to see this and to hear this is too much for me. It's, I, I can't handle that. And so we, we position ourselves in such a way that we don't have to engage it. And we say things like, uh, you know, why can't they just get their stuff together? Why, why are they always complaining? Or why, why are they saying it's this when it's really this? And, and what we've done is we've positioned ourselves in, in the place of expert already. Right? We, we haven't put ourselves in a place to listen and receive. We've already started to advise. We, we haven't put ourselves in the position of, of seeing and, and watching and observing. We've already put ourselves in the position of fixing. You hear that? And, and that's what keeps it from changing. That, that's what keeps things from being different. And, and what Isaiah is saying to God's people, he's saying, I want you to see. I want you to hear. He, he's calling them to do something that they, they haven't been able to do and couldn't do in their own. But he's calling them to love, right? I mean, justice is nothing more than systemic love. That's what it is. And love always, listen, always begins with looking. It's always about what you see and what you take in and, and the relationship that, that forms in the story that's told. It begins with looking. And so if we find ourselves blind and deaf, we have to ask, what, what am I seeing? What, what am I hearing? Who, who am I listening to? What, what am I engaging with? Right? Right? We have to put ourselves in proximity with the people who are in pain so that we can experience and hear and listen and see. People who are often unseen. The single mother struggling to raise kids with three jobs, the racial inequity in our criminal justice system, the immigrants that are neglected basic care, the unborn babies who are never given a chance, the constant threat of danger on black and brown bodies on a daily basis. All of that, whatever it may be, being in a place where we are in proximity gives us an opportunity to see and to hear. And when God begins to open our eyes and open our ears, He begins to work on us so that we can then be the people He works through. And this is the last point, the bruised servant. 
God asks a question in verse 23. Look at what he says. Verse 23, he says, Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Right? What he's saying is, Israel, my people, you, you have been called to this and you found wanting. You, you're lacking in the love that I desire for you to show. But that doesn't mean I'm giving up. That doesn't mean the work isn't going to be done. And, and so he, he's saying, who is going to do it? If it's not going to be you, it, it's going to be somebody. And so this right here is where Isaiah is hinting at, there's going to be another servant. There's going to be another one who would be faithful, who would be gentle, who would be selfless. There, there's going to be another servant, and his name is Jesus, right? Jesus is the true and better servant who fulfills all of Isaiah's servant songs. All of these longings for God's people to fulfill what they've been called to do, Jesus comes to do it. Jesus comes to fulfill the call in his own life, and he's fulfilling it, we see in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is in the synagogue, and he's on the Sabbath. And he's there teaching, and as he's there, uh, there's a man with a withered hand in the building. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they see that Jesus is here and this man who needs healing is here. And so they see an opportunity to catch Jesus in something. They ask Jesus this question. They say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, they're not asking because they want his answer and you know, they're, they're trying to have a Bible study or something like that. They're asking because they're hoping that Jesus says something wrong or does something wrong so that they can then turn him over to the authorities and get rid of him. Right, this man that's in front of him, that they're not—they're uh, not seeing him as a human being. They're seeing him as a tool, as a weapon, as something that they can use to get to Jesus. And so Jesus, seeing their game, he decides not to play the game. He calls the man forward instead of answering their question. He calls him up to the front of the building, and he says. Uh, or he calls him up in front of the building so that everyone can see, right? So that everyone in the room can see this man that the Pharisees wouldn't see. And then he says, stretch forth your hand. Stretch forth your hand. I mean, could you imagine? Not only does he want him up in the front so everyone can see, but he wants him to bring forth his arm that needed healing so that not a person in the building would miss it. And then when he stretches forth his hand, the Bible says it was restored. And the word there is crucial. The word isn't just a simple healing. The word in Greek means to restore all things. It, it actually ha it's a technical term in Greek to, to mean like the, the cosmological transformation. That, that, that's what it's used. And, and so he uses that word. Matthew uses that word to describe this man's healing. To say that, that this healing was more than his hand. This healing was his whole life. This healing was his whole existence. This, this healing was their whole community. He's saying, I want to bring restoration and wholeness and thriving all through this. And they couldn't see it. And so what did they do when he restores the man's hand? The Bible says that they leave that place and they immediately go conspire to kill him. And this is what Matthew picks up on. Matthew, as the narrator he sees this scene and he interprets the scene as two different servants. There's one servant in the Pharisees and the religious leaders who, who see this man and they, and they really don't see him. They really don't care about him. They really don't want to help him. And in fact, they get angry when someone does help him. 
They want to kill the people who want to help him. And then, they, and then Jesus, this other servant, and Matthew quotes, he quotes Isaiah 42. He says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. See, this servant is unlike us. This, this servant is unlike the ignorant folks that we are. He, he's unlike the people who won't show compassion, who won't show gentleness, who won't show selflessness. He is unlike us because nothing would deter him. Nothing would deter him from fulfilling the call that the Father had on his life, that he would bring about this restoration, that he would bring about this thriving and this transformation, and he would do it in a way that God had called him to do it. He would do it not to bruise a reed or, or to put out a smoldering wick. He would do it in a way where he would be broken, where he would be quenched. See, Jesus, he brings justice through his own bruising. His own bruising, right? He was the bruised servant for us. He was, as Isaiah would later say, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. It would be for the blind like us that he would enter into the darkness of the cross It would be for the deaf like us that he would enter into the silence of hell. It would be for both the oppressed and the oppressor that Jesus would endure the unjust crucifixion of a criminal, though he was innocent. Why would Jesus endure all that? Because the only way for him to bring the restoration of all things was through his death. Right? He saw in us our condition and knew that we didn't have an answer. He saw in us our misery and knew that we didn't have a way to see or hear again. He knew that we needed the healing that only He could provide. He knew that we needed the touch that only He could give. And so He gave Himself, life and death, for us. And so Jesus, as the bruised servant the one who does what we're called to do, he calls us now. He says, I invite you to trust me so that you can become the servant. See, God, his his plan hasn't changed. He, He still wants to do his work through his people. But now he sent his son Jesus to to redeem us so that he can work in us to open our eyes, to open our ears, so that now we can be his conduits that do the work. And so he's calling us still. Who will answer, is what he says. Who will answer? And the sound of faith is this. The sound of faith is, God, I I don't know what to do. My eyes are blind. My ears are deaf. I, I can't do this without you. I need you to heal me. I need you to change me. I need you to open my eyes, open my ears, help me to see what I can't see. It's to put your posture down and to say, I I need you. I need your love to work in me so that it can work through me. And when you begin to do that, God says, this, this, behold, is my servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, our bruised servant, our exalted king, to think about the one who came to be humiliated, to be broken by his own creation, to be rejected and despised, to be hated and killed, all because you came to love us. Oh Lord, what what a wretched folk we are, and yet you are so gracious. 
that nothing will stop you. You don't grow faint with us. You don't grow weary with us. Nothing discourages you. Nothing takes you back. You continue to press forward as you, as you pursue us, as you love us, as, as you save us, as you bring about the renewal of all things. And so we're grateful for you. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on us to be the kind of servant you called us to be. Help us to be engaged in the work that you're doing in the world. To bring about your glory, to make your name famous. Not about us, but about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.